So that's the book of Esther, starting with the first verse. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat in his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in this place. We thank you for our Pastor Mike, and we pray, Lord, that we would all hear the truth of your scripture as he preaches a sermon that you laid on his heart today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Well, hey, you can have a seat. Uh, my name is Mike Lee, and I get to be the pastor here at Mission Valley Church. I'm so excited to be back. I was out last week. Alfie did a great job. I'm so thankful for it. Uh, my family, we went to uh, California. We had a good time. Um, but I'm pumped to be back here today. There's like a lot of energy in the room. Uh, there's a lot of energy in the lobby. And I think it's because we get to start this brand new series today called Esther, How God is Working. Our own Natalie, uh, Natalie Warner actually designed this whole slide right here. It's very, very cool. Um, she said if you, yeah, if you could clap for her. Somebody started too. It's fine. Uh, we're so like, Natalie's so good. She's so good at so many things. But anyways, she made this and we're excited to do that. Hey, if I've never met you before, I'd love to do that. Uh, I'm going to be standing out in the uh, courtyard after church. Uh, we can shake hands, fist bump, whatever you're into. Or if you want to, uh, like just something a little bit less like in your face, shoot me a text, 602-763-3331. Uh, I'd love to connect with you during the week and kind of get to know you. So we're starting Esther today. Um, and, and this is such an interesting book of the Bible. Um, very, very interesting book of the Bible. There's a lot of reasons why it's interesting, but one of the things that is so interesting as we were getting ready to, to look at this sermon series and, and I was getting ready to preach it, just an interesting thing about this book. Uh, throughout this entire book, there's 10 chapters that kind of tell this story. Uh, we're going to hear some characters. We're going to learn some, pe some people's names and stuff. Um, one of the things that's so interesting is that throughout this entire 10 chapters of this book, there's no specific mention of God anywhere. There's no specific mention of God anywhere in the entire book. Uh, there's no specific mention of worship. There's no specific mention of prayer or even sacrifice. As a matter of fact, because of the absence of these specific references to God or worship or prayer, some people have judged this book to be of little value. Some biblical scholars have judged this book to be of little value. They say, why would you preach through a book like this? They find it to be of very little uh, value. And so some, some biblical scholars think that kind of thing. And I like to make fun of biblical scholars whenever I can. And so that's one of the reason, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do a little bit. But anyways, uh, we're going to preach it anyway. So why are we doing it? Why are we looking at this book, this book that doesn't mention God, doesn't mention prayer, doesn't mention worship? Why is it that we're going to study this book? And I want to just give you three reasons why. If you wonder why, like why is it that we're preaching through Esther? Why? Well, here's the first reason. The first reason is this. It is in the Bible. It is absolutely in the Bible. It's right here uh, in the Bible, the book of Esther. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that man 
of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Church, I want you to know that every single word in the Bible is God-breathed. This is God's word, and he's left it for us. And so we will look at the book of Esther like we looked at any book in the Bible, and we see the value in it in that God has given it to us. Like if you're like, well, I wonder why God gave us this. Well, you could ask him when you get up and see him, but he did give it to us. It's here in his book, and so we're going to study it for that reason. The second reason is, is that this book is a fantastic reminder that we are part of a much larger story that God has been writing since time began. There's this huge thing that's going on, and we will sometimes call this the upper story of God's Word, and, and this big, huge story that's going on. And if you were to think of this story like this, just imagine this stage. We did this last summer when we talked about the kings, but imagine this stage as sort of a timeline, if you will. And over here is the very, very beginning of time, and over there is the very, very end of time. This is what the story basically sounds like. In the beginning, God made the world, and it was perfect, and it worked exactly like it was supposed to. That was in the garden. God created everything. He made the story stars and the moon and the sun and the water and the fish and all those things. And then the pinnacle of his, of his creation, his absolute masterpiece was man. God created them, man and woman. And he created them and he gave them dominion over everything. He said, you can do anything you want in this beautiful world that I've created and it's fantastic and you can have all of that, just don't eat of that one tree. And they did. They ate of that tree. And when they did, sin entered the world. And then during that same moment when God told them that they had to leave this garden, the Garden of Eden, where he had made them, where he had placed them, when he left them out of there, he said, someday, someday down the road, someday in the future, somebody's going to come that's going to make all of this right. And God, right there in chapter 3 of Genesis, was pointing to Jesus. And then all the stuff that happens between that moment and when Jesus comes, that's called the Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see these stories that are pointing people to the need for Jesus. There'll be a period of time where God will choose a people for himself. He'll make a people for himself. He'll go to Abraham and he'll say, I'm going to make a people uh, for myself. And they're going to come from you. They're going to come from your offspring. And they're going to be as numerous as the stars. And that happens here. And those people eventually get put into captivity. They get taken by, by an Egyptian ruler, by Pharaoh, and they get put into captivity. And so God says to another man, Moses, I want you to go and get my people out. And he does that. God, God like through Moses, makes this amazing thing happen. And the people come out and they have a hard time following God. And they said, if we just had some rules. And so God says, I'm going to give you some rules to live by. He gives these, these 10 commandments. It's, this is this part of the story. He gives them these 10 commandments to just live by these rules. But they struggle to do that. They just can't seem to figure it out. They can't seem to live by these rules. So they're, they're just struggling every day to do that. Just like you and I would struggle to just follow some rules. These laws that God has given, they can't figure it out. And so they say, well, if we just had some judges, that would really help us out if we had some judges that would be able to tell us are we following the rules correctly or not and so God says okay well here's some judges and during that time they, they, they can't really figure out the judges either they can't follow those either and so they start to ask for kings if we could just have kings God all these other countries have kings can we have kings and so God gives them kings they, the kings come and the kings fail too the kings are, are, are men and they're they're not perfect they're they're messing up and they're pointing to the fact that what they really need is a savior and so again after the kings, we get prophets, and they all talk about the Savior. And then one day in Bethlehem, the Savior finally 
shows up. The Savior comes. He comes as a baby, and it's fantastic. And here he is. He's Jesus, and he, he comes, and he's, and he's born, and he's, and he's here to save everybody. And Jesus lives the perfect life that we never could. He dies the horrific death that we deserve, and he defeats that death so that anyone who would believe in him would spend eternity with him. And then Jesus, right before he leaves, says, hey, I'm going to go up to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place, and one day I'm going to come back and get you. And until I come back, this is what you are to be doing. Here is the business of what you are supposed to be doing. Go out into the world, teach people everything I've taught you, and baptize them in my name, and I will be with you until I come back and get you. And then that goes on. The church starts up. We see that in the book of Acts. We see all these letters that are written. That's the New Testament. All that stuff that happens between when Jesus leaves and when he comes back, that's the New Testament. And at the end of the Bible, what we see is the book of Revelation, which tells us that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to defeat everything forever. He's going to make everything right. And this whole big thing that's going on is this thing called the upper story. And all throughout the upper story, if we focus in on any one particular area, like last summer we focused in on the time of the kings and we looked at David and we looked at the different kings that were around. And this summer we're going to focus in on this story of Esther. We're going to focus in on this this smaller, this lower story. But here's the thing that I want you to know. We are as connected to the people in this story, to people like Esther and Mordecai and Haman and King uh, King Xerxes and, and the Queen Vashti today. We are as connected to them as you are to the person next to you as part of this big story that God has been telling since the very beginning of time. A time when God made people for, him, for himself, and, and, and he's going to bring those people back to himself. This, the reason we're studying this, we want you to understand that you're part of this upper story. And then the third reason that we're going to study the book of Esther, the third reason that I'm so excited to be in this particular book, is that it is a good reminder that even when we don't see it, God is always working. Even when we don't see it, God is always working. I think it's fascinating that as God gives us this story in Esther, that he is not mentioned anywhere in it, and yet he is the entire time authoring it, creating it, unfolding it, making it happen. God is the, the, the narrator. God is the creator. God is the director of this story. He's making all of this happen. In this book, we're going to see that there is a time where God's people are truly in danger. There's a danger that, that, that they're going to be eradicated. And God steps in to, through this divine, uh, this divine action to make sure that they're safe. And I want you to understand that even when we don't see it, God is working. And I think that it's so good right now in the society that we live in, in the time that we live in, to be reminded that God is in control, has always been in control, and is still in control. Maybe you're walking around sometimes and you're like, hey God, do you see what's going on down here? It's a freaking mess. Like, God, do you see it down here? Are you seeing what we're dealing with? Do you see the struggle that people are dealing with? Do you see the crime? Do you see the diseases? Do you see all these problems? God, are you in this? Are you around? Have you fallen asleep at the wheel? Where are you? And it's good to remember that even as we look at this book where God is not mentioned, that God is working and he's still very much at work today. That's where God is at. And so that's why we are studying this book for those three very good reasons. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to walk through this book. 
We're just going to walk through this book, and I want us to remember that this is a narrative. This is a story. It's important when we are looking at Scripture to realize, are we looking at a story? Are we looking at something that's descriptive, or are we looking at something that's prescriptive? Like, is this something we are to know or something we are to do? And, and, and I want you to understand that this is a narrative. This is a story. So you don't need to leave here doing everything that we're going to encounter in this book. Like, there's a section in the book where one of the bad guys in the book is going to be hung from a 40-foot gallery. And you don't need to hang your friends from 40-foot gallows. Like, I don't want you to read this book and be like, oh, now I know what to do. We're going to start hanging people. Like, no, that ain't it. We're not going to do that. Yet, at the same time, there are things that we are going to learn from the people in this book that, that we are, as much part of God's upper story as they are, we're going to learn some things from them that we can apply to our lives. And so we're going to start this story today, and in this story today, we're going to encounter two of the characters that we're going to see. You don't even get to hear about Esther yet. This book is like called Esther, but she's not even in the first chapter. Sorry. If you came here for Esther, come back next week. We'll get to her. Today, we're looking at King Xerxes and Queen Vashti, these two people, the king and queen at this time. And one of the things that we see in these two people today is a desire for glory. We're going to use this term a lot today, this desire for glory. They have a desire to glorify themselves and to be glorified by others. We just read this story that kind of sets this up, the first four verses. And I think that if we look at the entire history of people, we can see that this is a theme that runs all throughout the upper story where people are constantly trying to get glory. Where we're constantly trying to get glory, and in order to get it, we try to take it away from the person who has glory, which is God. We are in a constant battle for glory with God. As sinners, that's what we do. Think about this. Adam and Eve desired glory to know what God knew, and so they broke his plan in favor of their own. Like God had a plan, and they were like, well, we don't like your plan. We want our plan, and so they chased that glory. Moses was not content to continue to allow God to get all of the glory, so when he tried to get water from the rock, he left God out of it. He, he does this, this desire for glory. glory. The Israelites brought out of captivity were not content with God having all the glory for their release, and so they make for themselves a golden calf that they can worship. Even Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, was constantly trying to assert himself and get glory as he argues with Jesus about things like going to the cross or washing his feet or all manners of things. And you and I do it too. You and I do the same thing. We try to get glory. We try to assert ourselves over God. We try to assert our ways instead of his. We want control of our lives and we want to do it our way. We want control of our actions so we pick and choose which parts of God's words we believe and practice. We want glory so we buy things we can't afford or mortgage our time to get more things. We want glory so we post our very best moments on social media and then just wait for the likes and comments to roll in. We are a people that very much want glory, much like the people in the story that came before us, we want glory that ultimately belongs to God. And in this story today, we're going to see that we can't actually get it. As a matter of fact, that's sort of our big idea. The big idea of this sermon is this. As sinners, we are in a constant battle with God for glory, a battle that we just cannot win. As sinners, we are in a constant battle for glory with God. We are constantly trying to pull glory back from God, just like our forefathers did, just like our ancestors did, just like the people in this story did. And so as we unpack this story today, I'm going to share five key ideas that will caution you and I about where glory is not found. We're going to just walk through this real quickly together, and there's going to be five places where glory is not found. And the first place that it's not found is this, glory is not found in your riches. Glory is not found in your riches. 
We talked about this a little bit during the James series, but it's pretty cool that it's here in Esther as well, as all this whole upper story is connected. Esther 1.4 says this, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. A lot of what King Xerxes is doing here is putting on a show for the people. He's put on this big party for the people, 180-day festival, 180-day feast, 180-day party where he's showing off his riches. He is saying, look at me and look at what I have. I have all this stuff and I want you to see it. And if we are honest, some of us can probably relate to this. We work really hard to get stuff, and when we get it, we want to show it. We want to show it off on social media. We invite people to see it. We wear it, and we drive it, and we show it off. And I'm not saying that anything is inherently wrong with any of your money or King Xerxes' money. I'm just saying that there's no glory in it. There's no lasting glory in it. As we studied uh, in James just a couple of weeks ago, we know that it's temporary and it'll fade away. Your money and your stuff, just like King Xerxes' money and stuff, will eventually, as James said, be eaten by moths and rust. It will not last forever. There's no lasting glory in it. It will fade. Your money and your wealth is a tool. It's a tool that you can use to bring glory to God. It's a tool that you can use to bring glory to God. You can say, God, that I have this stuff and let all that I have be glorified to you. Lord, help me to steward this well in a way that would be pleasing to you, God. But you can also stop mortgaging your life to get more money, thinking that it will somehow bring you glory or that in and of itself it is glorious. Your riches have no value to do this. And yet, as we look out in the world, we see so many people, some of them who look just like you and me, that are spending our time trying to get more money and get more stuff as though it in and of itself will bring us glory. And I'm telling you what I wish somebody would have told King Xerxes during this 180-day party. Dude, this ain't it. This isn't going to get it done for you. This isn't going to last. This is temporary. Throughout the story, glory has never been and will never be found in riches. The second place that you won't find it, glory is not found in your rituals. Church, I want you to know that glory is not found in your rituals. Look what's going on here in verse 5 through 7. There's a, a whole ritual that's going on here. It says this, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So after the 180 days, then he has a feast for seven days. You mentioned seven days worth of eating, whatever you want. This is a huge feast. Uh, it says there, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stone. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Can you imagine this party? Imagine the detail at which the storyteller is telling us. God is telling us how lavish this party is. I mean, I mean, even Janine can't decorate like this. I mean, this is really nice stuff that they got going on here. I mean, golden goblets, but like different ones for different people. It's lavish. Uh, one of the rituals that occurs throughout this book is feasts. We're going to see a lot of feasting going on in this book. There are all kinds of feasts. And in this chapter alone, we're actually going to see two different elaborate feasts going on at the same time. King Xerxes is throwing one uh, and Queen Vashti is throwing another one. And these are ornate rituals. 
the menu would have been well thought out. The decorations would have been well prepared. The guest list would have been so intentional. The music, the lights, the ambiance created, all of it would have been so thorough. And this is all fine and good, but there is no glory in it. There's no glory in it. This is a competition with God. This is worshiping created things instead of the creator. There's no glory in it. There's our rituals. In the same way as Christians, we have rituals. The way that we set up church, the way that we celebrate big days, the way that we decorate and use lights and set a tone, it's all fine. But God does not need any of it. God does not need any of it. God is in and of himself glorious. He does not need us to do anything. God would be perfectly content if we showed up here every Sunday, opened up his word, studied it together, and then praised him, worshiped him. No lights, no sound, no air conditioning, no decorations. He doesn't need any of it. God would be perfectly glorified. And again, this is not to say that you can't do these things as an act of worship. There's a way to work really hard to set the church up and, and move the things around and set up kids' ministry and to do all that as an act of worship to say, God, I am putting my best effort forward to, to make a place where people can come to worship you. That is fantastic, but the act in and of itself is not glorious. You can work to the Lord to give him glory, but it is not you that is glorious. Paul told us in, in Romans, he warns us to keep our worship on the creator and not on the creation. And there is a way through these ornaments rituals to start worshiping the things that have been created instead of the creator, and that will not bring glory. See, all the things that went into these banquets didn't produce glory for King Xerxes or Queen Vashti, nor did they produce glory for God. They were rituals, they were parties, they were nice events, but they are not in and of themselves glorious. So glory is not found in your rituals. Third idea this morning is this, glory is not found in your relationships. Glory is not found in your relationships. Listen to this, verse 8 and 9. It says, And drinking was according to his edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asherus. The king and the queen gave these feasts for all the people. The king gave it for the men and the queen gave it for the women. The king and the queen both had relationships with these people. They were either their servants or their friends or their subjects or dignitaries. There were all kinds of relationships happening here, but glory is not found in all of our relationships. That's not where glory is found. There, there's a way to glorify relationships, to put them on some kind of a pedestal, and I want you to know that that is not where glory is found. Now, you can certainly use your relationships in a way that glorify God. You can use your relationships. It's like you could use your money in a way that would glorify God, but the relationship in and of itself is not glorious. For example, an unmarried dating couple who chooses to follow God's command to stay abstinent until marriage is certainly a way to glorify God. A husband and a wife who choose to love one another and forgive one another, even when it gets really, really hard, is a way to glorify God. A parent who raises a child to know and love Jesus through discipline and patience is a way to bring glory to God. A person who builds relationships to earn the right to have gospel conversations is a way to bring glory to God. And certainly a person who loves others like Jesus loved them, even when it's really hard, is certainly a way to bring glory to God. But relationships in and of themselves are not where glory is found. 
I think this is important that we recognize this in our culture today because as a society, we have put certain values on relationships that might make us think that those relationships are ultimate. There's a way to look at this world today and think that we must have put some kind of special situation, a special uh, uh, like idea around marriage where we would think that marriage is ultimate. And I want you to know that marriage is not ultimate. There's a way to look at the world today where we would say that parenting is ultimate. There's a way to think that, a way to think like, hey, once you have kids, then you've made it, then you've done what you're supposed to do. But I want you to know that parenting is not ultimate. I've talked to grandparents that tell me that grandparenting is awesome, but even that is not ultimate. You see, in this society, we tend to glorify relationships. We put relationships up on a pedestal, a pedestal where only God can be. We sometimes glorify relationships over God. A good litmus test to figure out if you are glorifying relationships above God is to do this. It's to ask yourself if you care more about what the relationship thinks or what that relation thinks than what God says, you might be glorifying that relationship over God. And I know relationships with people are important, but they're not the same as a relationship with God. I'll say this in front of my church family. This is so true. I love Penny, but I worship and glorify God. I mean, I love Penny. I love Penny more than anybody else in this room, but I worship and glorify God. I'll tell you this. I love James, Michaela, and Courtney, but I worship and glorify God. I actually, as your pastor, love most of you. I like the other ones, but I glorify and I worship God, and I'm so much more concerned about pleasing God than I am about pleasing anyone else, because I will glorify God, because God is worthy of my glory. That is, that is where the glory is. As I was getting ready to preach this series, it's so hard to preach Esther. There's a, th- a thousand ways to preach it, and that's probably why a lot of people don't preach it. I had to remind myself every single day of the last three weeks that I am preaching this predominantly to please God, not to please any of you. I hope you like it, but I care what God thinks. See, glory is not found in relationships. Here's the fourth place where glory is not found. This one stings. Glory is not found in your rightness. There'll be no glory found in your rightness. Esther 1, 10 through 12 says this, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizra, Harbona, Bigtha, and Agriatha, Zethar, Carcass. See, I didn't make you read this one, Nona. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princesses her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. I think it's so cool to think about the fact that Bible times people are just like you and me. And so right in the middle of this story, this really cool story, we just see a little marital spat. We just see a little marital argument, and we don't know why. We have no idea why. Sometimes I like, like, God, give us like, can we give a backstory here? What's going on? I don't know why. Why doesn't she want to go? What's her problem? What's his problem? Maybe it's his fault. I mean, I'm a guy, so I probably think it probably wasn't him. He's probably doing the right thing. I don't know. And other people might read this and be like, dude, he was probably being a jerk. We 
have no idea why. We just know this. The king asked the queen to come over, and she says no, and we don't know why. Maybe she was mad at him. Maybe she was busy. Maybe she had her own party to plan. Maybe she was doing her own thing. Maybe he was a total jerk last night, and she already said, don't be asking me to come to your dang party because I ain't coming. I'm tired of your crap. We don't know. Maybe it's totally that. And whatever happens, he gets mad, and now there's a problem. And the truth is this, that one of them is probably right and the other one is probably wrong. And we don't know all the information, but we could certainly guess that one of them is probably right here and one of them is probably wrong. But here's what I want you to know. Glory is not found in your rightness anyway. It really doesn't matter which one is right or wrong. We don't know and it doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, you see you are most dangerous when you are right. You see, when we're right, we'll dig our feet in. We'll say hard things. We will be rough to other people when we are sure we are right because we'll be like, hey, I'm not backing down. I know that I'm right. When we are right, we dig our heels and we get stubborn. We say horrible things. Maybe Queen Vashti is totally right here. Maybe the king was just a jerk last night. Maybe she said, I don't want to come to your party, so don't invite me. We don't know, but it's at least plausible that she has plenty of good reason to refuse his request. Maybe she is so right here, but it doesn't help her or bring her glory. As a matter of fact, it's going to get her banished. That's what's going to happen. She's going to be banished. Maybe she's totally right, and now she's totally kicked out of the kingdom. Maybe she's totally right, and it doesn't help her at all. And maybe King Xerxes is right. Maybe he's been so sweet to her, and she is just being a jerk for no good reason. Maybe he had a great speech in mind, and he just wanted to bring her up and tell all of his buddies, this is my wife, she's so fantastic. We don't know. Maybe that's what's going on. And so he gets mad that she won't come. But this is what happens. His rightness isn't going to help him either. He's going to have to go find a whole new wife because he's going to literally kick his wife out of the kingdom. Dudes, don't ever be so right that your wife goes and sleeps on the couch. That sucks. Like, don't do that. That's a bad plan. It's not helpful to you. Don't do Some of you are like looking at your husbands right now. Like, oh, I told you. See? Some of y'all are giving me some money after this. I'm telling you, your rightness is not going to help you much. When you're sure you're right, you become so much more dangerous than when you know you're wrong. We all know what to do when we're wrong. When we're wrong, we apologize. We repent and apologize. We like, feel like idiots and we say we're really sorry. But when we're sure we're right, that's when we dig in and pull out the gloves and let's go at it. Glory is not found in your rightness. And then finally, this last one. This is important to know. Glory is not found in your rules. Glory is just not found in your rules. Look what happens after the king gets upset. King gets upset, verses 13 through 22. This is what it says. This is a long section, but just listen to this. Just listen to it like a story. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Carthra, Shethra, Admath, Shadrath, Meres, Merentra, Memcom, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Asherus in the presence of the king and the officials? He says, hey, what is the rule here? What are we going to do with this? She has violated a rule, so what is the rule to fix this? So he, she knows the rule. The king said come. She didn't come, so what are we going to do? What's the punishment? What is the rule? Let's go to the rule book, right? If you ever find yourself in a relationship pulling out the rule book, you lost. Stop. Put it away. Repent and believe, all right? But he doesn't do it. This is what he does. It says, 
Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of the king. Like, this is so bad. Like, she didn't just screw up a little bit. She has offended everybody. This one woman who really gets, like, one line in this entire chapter has somehow managed to offend everybody. Horrible. Man, what is her problem? Let's go on and see. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Asherus is command Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Man, you know what's going to happen is that all the women are going to start thinking that they don't have to do what the men say. That's going to be a real problem. We can't have that. So this is sarcasm. Don't email me, okay? Don't, don't get after me, all right? Some of you just don't. I'm with you, with Jesus. Goes on, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. They just had one little marital argument. Can I imagine what would happen if every time Penny and I argued it screwed up the whole church? We would feel so bad because you guys would be screwed up all the time. Anyways, but we're getting along great right now. She goes on and says, if it please the king, let a royal order. Here's what we should do. Let's make a rule. This is what we should do. Let's make a rule. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be replaced that Vashti is never again to come before the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Well, that's what we should do. Let's make a rule and just kick her out of here. That's going to help everything. And so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. You know what will help all these women give honor to their husbands? If we just take one wife and kick her out of here. We'll make a display of her so that all the rest of these women will start towing the line. That's going to help out. That will bring much glory. I'm not going to read the rest of this. Uh, You can read it on your own. This is what's happened. The king is mad at the queen. He goes and he talks to his advisor. He says, we can't have these women not listening to us. I mean, if the queen won't listen to the king, then all these women might start not listening to their husbands, and that's going to be a disaster. I mean, how on earth are these men supposed to be glorified if their wives won't listen to them? That's going to be a problem, so let's kick her out. (laughs) That was also just, you know, that's... uh... So they, so they make a decree, and it goes out to all the land. It says every man will be the master of his household, as though this rule is somehow going to make the women in this time glorify their husbands more. And we don't know how well this went, but you and I can probably guess that since Bible times people are a lot like us, it probably didn't go well. I imagine it was a cold night in the area in a lot of homes. I bet you there was a lot of sleeping on couches going on. I bet you it wasn't very good at all. You see, rules are not going to bring glory. Rules are not going to bring glory because rules are woefully inept at getting things done. A good classroom teacher will tell you to have a few rules that are really important, but not to have a laundry list of rules because they just won't work. A good parent will tell you to have some rules that you stick with, but don't be thinking that making hundreds of rules for your household will somehow bring glory or peace. Rules are fine and good, but they do not produce glory. There would be no glory produced here. What happened after this is probably a lot of men and a lot of women were fighting that night. There's no glory to be found because glory is not found in your rules. And so if glory is not found in your riches and glory is not found in your rituals, and it's not found in your relationships, your rightness, or your rules. Did you catch that pastoral alliteration there? That was strong work. I'm just saying. There's no glory in it, but I'm just proud. 
glory is not found in these things, where is glory found? Where is it that you find glory? Well, glory is found in the only place glory has ever been found. Glory is found in the Lord. If you look at this entire upper story, if you imagine this story as a timeline, glory is found in the Lord, the same place that it's always been. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God was not lonely. God was not bored. God is glorious, and God is a creator, and so God created everything to reflect his glory back to him. That's what God did. God made this place. He made everything that you can see as a reflection of his glory. God created everything to reflect his glory back to him. Everything we see and experience is God's creation, and man is his masterpiece, and all of it was created to reflect his glory, and he never shies away from telling us that. God showed us his glory when he brought his people out of captivity. Exodus 14, 17 through 18 says, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and over his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. One of the things that was so different about Pharaoh is that he had these things, these chariots and these horses, and God said, I will show you how fantastic and glorious glorious I am when I defeat him, even his horses and his chariots. God showed his glory when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Exodus 24, 16 says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it in six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. That's where God's glory is. Wherever God is, that is where the glory is. God's glory was evident in the time of the kings. First Samuel 15 through 29 says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Glory was written about by the psalmist. Psalm 24, 8 through 10 says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. God's glory was pointed out by the prophets. Isaiah 6, 3 says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord. This is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The glory belongs to the Lord. God's glory came as a baby in Bethlehem. You know the verse, it says in Luke 2, 9 through 14, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Glory became flesh. Glory literally became flesh. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, who would live a perfect life. Jesus, who would die a horrific death. And Jesus, who would defeat that death so that anyone who would believe could spend eternity with him. Jesus himself, who glorified God when he said in John 17, 4 through 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And here is 
is some really good news. You want good reason to sing, oh, happy day, but loud this time. As believers in Jesus, we share in that glory that Jesus has. Listen to what it says, Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, that we will share in this glory with him. And one day Jesus will return in his glory to judge the living and the dead. This is what's going to happen at this point in the story when Jesus comes back. This is what's going to happen, not what may happen. This is what's going to happen in Matthew 25, 31 to 34. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left and the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Inherit the kingdom that was provided for you that has been formed since way back there at the beginning of the story. That's what's going to happen when we share in this glory with him and Jesus will take all those who believe with him and they will worship him in glory forever and ever. Revelation 5, 12 through 13 says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. That is our king. That is who we believe in. Glory originates from, belongs to, and will always be God's. And if you believe in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you will share in that glory and to spend eternity worshiping him. It's fantastic. You will be in the presence of glory. And it's not found in anything that you possess here on earth. It is where it has always been and where it will always be. Glory belongs to the Lord. But you don't have to wait to worship him. You can do that right now. You can do that right now. That's what we're going to get ready to do. We're going to sing praises to worship and bring glory to God. Can you believe? Can you believe today that this story really did happen, that you really are part of it, that you are as part of it sitting in an auditorium at Thunderbird High School as Queen Vashti was a part of this story so many years before. But you live in that time where Jesus has already come and told you what you need to do to spend eternity with him. Can you believe that today? Can you believe that Jesus really did live a perfect life, really did die a horrific death, and really did defeat that death so that if you can believe, you will spend eternity with him, glorifying him? Can you believe that today? Let's pray. God, you alone, you alone are glorious. And as sinners, we constantly try to wrestle glory back from you. So we confess that. We confess it even though you already know it. Help us to believe anew today. And God, if there's anybody in the room that has never believed in you, God, I ask you to give them the faith to believe that they could spend eternity in glory with you. 
It's your name that we pray. Amen.